Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. In this episode, teachers unions hold red state taxpayers hostage as the media gloats. This is the Influence Watch podcast. In Oklahoma, teachers unions have staged a strike demanding tax hikes on state taxpayers to increase education funding and teacher pay and benefits. The state passed a package of tax increases and a pay increase earlier this legislative session, but the teachers union has canceled classes and stormed the state capitol, demanding even more. This militancy in Oklahoma follows on the heels of a nine-day strike by teachers unions in West Virginia. That was the first statewide teacher strike in America since 1990. Teachers unions, hostage-taking has paid off. Not only did the state government give teachers a raise, but they gave up on expanding charter schools and reforming work rules too. Now, teachers union in Arizona and Kentucky are threatening militancy of their own, putting the pressure on parents and taxpayers. Mike, what's going on here? Right, a lot of states uh, have, a, have rules in their public employee law that stipulate that government employees cannot strike. The idea, quite sensibly, is that government employees uh, have, that the government has a mono- as effective monopoly over the provision of government services. Obviously, there are private schools. Some states have charter schools that are not governed by the state collective bargaining agreements. But ultimately, the government has an effective monopoly on the provision of government services, like public education. And there's not, you know, if, if uh, UAW, United Auto Workers, goes on strike at Chrysler, uh, and Chrysler stops making cars for a year, really big strike, biggest in, you know, would be the biggest in history, right? Uh, then I can buy a Chevy, or I can buy a Honda, or I can buy a Volkswagen. Uh, I can't, if the teachers go on strike for three months, I cannot move my child, you know, move my child's education on that short of notice for that length of time. So you end up with parents have to find short short notice childcare or take their leave time off work, um, and it get it gets even worse, honestly, because in a lot of the in a lot of these cases, both in Oklahoma, Oklahoma and West Virginia, a lot of the local school boards, which We'll get to how teachers unions control school boards. Uh, actually, cancel officially canceled classes on the days that the teachers were striking, which means that like the, a snow day, as if they were as if they were a snow day, as if they were uh, an inclement weather day. That means the teachers get paid during the strike. UAW goes on strike against Chrysler. Nobody gets pay- the the workers. The, are work, not paid. the the strikers aren't paid. You have to. You want to get paid? You go to work. If the school board cancels classes, and the school board is ostensibly supposed to be management, cancels classes because the union basically controls their election, uh, then there is no pressure on the on the on the employees on the teachers to go back to work. That's right. So mom and dad have a kid at home, maybe have to take time off their own work, get in trouble, in danger of losing their job, certainly losing cash. Uh, losing, losing productivity, losing income. The state, the the the, the state economy, uh, is thrown into a, you know is thrown into a jumble as people have to take time off work, um, and all the while the teachers are being paid not to work because the school board has said, uh, oh you guys are going off on going off on strike, which means more money for us because you're striking for for changes to government policy, not 
uh, as much as you're striking for changes to your pay and working working conditions. Uh, okay, we'll cancel classes. It's a snow day. Yeah. So and they and they did do that for day after day after day in the case of West Virginia. So uh, this is. Uh, this is another instance of something that a word that we don't use enough, I think, or people don't fully appreciate when it comes to government employees, especially unionized ones, they have a monopoly. And if I, you know, uh, if General Motors had a monopoly, there'd be all kinds of people up in arms, understandably. I don't want the government to grant General Motors a monopoly. Um, uh, in years past, there was one single phone company, and it enjoyed a monopoly thanks to the government. You didn't have any other choice for your phone service, uh, and that was not a good thing uh, for average Americans. So monopoly power for uh, state government employees sounds like it's a pretty dangerous and harmful thing to most of the rest of us. Absolutely. And that's before you consider, and, and we will get to that, the political power and the political authority that these government worker unions are able to are able to leverage both at the state and especially at the local level. Yep, I I, I will say real real quick. Well, uh, I know we're going deeper later, but the um, uh, people often don't appreciate that even in states you consider very Republican, very conservative. Um, it's still the case there. I mean, I, nobody's shocked that New York City. Uh, government worker unions are powerful. Of course they're powerful in, in New York City. But my favorite example on that um, is the state of Wyoming. Now, this was the state that sent Dick Cheney, uh, notorious conservative Republican, to Congress uh, term after term after term. Sends Liz um, Cheney to Congress right now. <laughs> yes, exactly. Now sends another Cheney family member to Congress. Uh, it's, it's one of the most rural, uh, least densely populated states in the country. I'm sure that its rate of gun ownership and NRA membership is exceedingly high. Um, you know, good, solid, cowboy, conservative state. And yet, what is the largest employer in every county in the state of Wyoming? The, the school board. <laughs> I was going to say the, the public, public schools. School yes, which explains why. And I haven't looked at the numbers uh, in in recent years, but oh, ten or fifteen years ago, when I looked at the numbers, there was one regular charter school in the state of Wyoming, just one. And charter schools, of course, people need to understand. Every single charter school is a public government. Funded right. school. It, is a, it is publicly publicly government funded, but it is run independently. And more and most importantly for the discussion we're having today about teachers unions, it is independent of the union agreement for the local school board. Yes. Once now, in a while may, a charter they, is gets unionized they be, by itself. Right. They may be unionized as a as for any that other, one as any other employer, yeah. but just for that one or you know charter schools school or, or the chain, or the, network. Or the, chain yeah, the chain the chain of yeah. of schools in one jurisdiction. So the point being that it a charter school is at least some degree of challenge to the government school monopoly. Yes. And even though it is in fact absolutely a government even school. Though it is a, even though it is a government funded yes. school, it does provide competition yeah. to the government worker union monopoly. That's right. So we're going to talk a lot about teachers unions today, but it's important to remember that teachers unions are only one part of what the experts in education refer to the blob, which is the larger system that is the, the entirety of government-run schools. Uh, and those school boards are part of that. And those school boards, as we've already been implying, can be uh, rather more friendly. Fully owned subsidiaries of the 
teachers local unions. teachers unions. yes so and even in a very red very very red state even like in, Wyoming even in very conservative and very Republican yeah, places because they don't you know it, it's understandable anybody who runs a business would love to be a monopoly I'd love to have which just means I have no competition I run a think tank I wish if my think tank were the only think tank in the world boy that would improve fundraising uh, <laughs> tomorrow so well, let's go back to the, to our story for today. Uh, these militant teacher strikes. Uh, the first one uh, was in West Virginia. What can you tell us about that? So, in in West Virginia, the West Virginia uh, Education Association, which is a subsidiary of the NEA, which is the largest teachers union in the country, and the American Federation of Teachers West Virginia, which is a subsidiary of the American Federation of Teachers, which is the second largest teachers union in the country, uh, staged a what was originally going to be a two day walkout. Uh, officially, public government worker strikes are illegal in West Virginia. Uh, no enforcement of that law was taken, so far as I have been able to determine. Uh, we, we've been. Yeah, it would be basically the, the the tricky thing, of course, is it would be rather hard to fire all the teachers in a state, right? And the pro and every and everybody knows it. Uh, Mike Antonucci, who's uh, one of the better watchdogs of teachers unions. Uh, uh, writes uh, educationintelligenceagency.org. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's right. eiaonline.org. Is, is yeah, his, his website. Yeah, um, Education Intelligence Agency, EIA. Uh, you know, he basically, even though he's a, a staunch critic and a staunch watchdog of teachers' unions, says that laws that prohibit public employee strikes are not a good idea because everybody knows they're not going to be enforced. And although I kind of disagree, I... I believe that uh, because of the monopoly position that government that government uh, services have that strikes are not are not an appropriate form of labor relations as a practical matter Antonucci has a point yes <laughs> um, and and the the teachers unions uh, know that and then the other issue in West Virginia we've been discussing school boards the school boards all did the snow day trick on the days that the teachers were walking out. So they got paid. They were not in any way held harmed for their demonstration. And because of this, uh, this alliance between the school boards and the teachers union, the state government had to, get, had to abjectly capitulate. The state government uh, agreed not only this, the state government negotiated a raise, okay, fine, West Virginia teachers are, pretty, are not very well paid. West Virginia is a very poor state. It doesn't have a great deal of economic capacity, especially as uh, coal mines that the ones that aren't exhausted uh, are seeing reduced demand uh, as a lot of our electricity generation shifts over to natural gas. Okay, fine, you know, a pay rise, whatever. But also, and more importantly, any sort of reforms we've been discussing charter schools as a competition to the government worker monopoly. We've been discussing, uh, uh, we, have, we haven't been discussing yet, pensions, which are a long-term drag on state finances and state services that taxpayers expect that they're paying for. All reforms to that are now out the window, at least for the time being. Yep. And that is, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because, again, uh, you know, the, the, the average American sympathizes with teachers. It's not an easy job to be a teacher. Most teachers are doing good work, and, and that's terrific. But of course, the unions exist supremely not for the average solid good teacher, 
uh, but for the extreme bad teacher who could never be gotten rid of. The bad teacher relies on the teacher's union way more than a good teacher relies on the teacher's union. Yes. A good, a good teacher could, if they wish to stay in the, if they wish to stay in the profession that was non-union, they would be a target for, to be retained. They would, uh, you know, uh, principals would want to keep them. That would probably improve their compensation. Uh, bad teachers would be targets for termination. And yep. they rely on the work rules. They rely on the seniority schedule that puts all the teachers in the same boat that the union that the union demands. Yeah. So so we have great sympathy for the average solid good teacher doing a hard job that's never going to be fabulously well paid. Uh, but it's important to remember the unions are the ones hurting those. So if you're a good teacher and you get a student in your class this year who was taught by a lousy teacher last year who should have been fired, your job is much harder because last year's seniority-protected, union-protected teacher did not do her job. And the other thing, too, is that, um, uh, as you point out, there are the benefits. And, you know, to prepare for this podcast, I read thousands of words of news coverage of all these things. I saw the most fleeting mention of uh, the healthcare benefits of teachers, may, only in the only to be mentioned that the unions wanted more and better. I didn't see any comparison of the average teacher's cost of health insurance versus the average West Virginian. So, you know, I am sure that the that the West Virginia teachers would like uh, nicer health care and for less cost. But I'd like to hear how does that compare to the average coal miner in West Virginia, the average waitress in West Virginia, the average truck driver in West Virginia. Are they getting as lovely a package of health care benefits? Because they're paying for the teachers' health care benefits. And for that matter, are the teachers paying at all? I don't know because the coverage was so poor. You know, in many cases, government workers uh, pay little to nothing into their uh, to for the cost of their own health care benefits. I have to pay 30% of the cost. I'm lucky. I haven't, my company's generous. It pays 70%, but I have to pay 30%. There are not many teachers' unions that have contracts where teachers are paying 30% of their health care benefits. And then you mentioned pensions, which is even greater. And, um, and, if, and, if, and, and if, I, if I may riff for a little bit on pensions, uh, if you want to know why the state of Illinois will go bankrupt in your lifetime, in, in, uh, <laughs> in my lifetime, not not just in. I mean, in my lifetime, it might be they go bankrupt multiple times. Uh, I, I, the the reason that you know Illinois is fiscally insolvent. The reason that uh, New York, uh, Connecticut, Connecticut more so than New York, uh, are following them. Connecticut not too distantly. New York a little bit in the a little bit in the haze. The amount of promises that have been made, these pensions for government workers, including teachers, that were made many years ago when government worker collective bargaining started, the state government and local governments thought, okay, you know, they're, they're state and local governments, it's public finance, we'll kick our expenditures and our revenue raising down the road to some future legislature after I'm dead. And so they promised these, lav these lavish pensions and now the bills are coming due. And now these, again, these contracts are set in stone. The unions using both political power and monopoly power to strike are preventing, you know, prevent any and all reform. 
and again, you you see in place you know in places that have gone already over the already over the cliff, places like Detroit, places like Puerto Rico, where the government can't perform its normal services. The government has to close fire stations. The government has to uh, government has to close schools to pay the retired workers. Yes. Now and again. Uh, it is an outrageous failure of our fine mainstream news media that in all these reports, I never saw any discussion of pensions for the teachers, although I bet that was one of the things that they were fighting about, and nor did I see any of the you know, legitimate comparisons. I don't know what age you can retire as a teacher at West Virginia, but I, off the top of my head, I bet you it's somewhere in your 50s or it's after 20, 25 years of service or something well, more, like that. I mean, more, more importantly than necessarily what, uh, what age you can retire, when you retire... How much you get. You get, you, yes. get a che- you get a check from the government and you don't have to, you know, my, 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 the principal portion of my retirement is money I have laid aside that I have put in essentially the stock market, you know, the stock and the bond market in a 401k, and it is you know what that what happens to that is decided by the vagaries of the economy i don't have the state government and my teachers union telling you know promising promising mm-hmm. now promising that they will come hold you know essentially i mean if you refuse to pay your taxes men with guns come to your house you know holding a gun to people like me taking money out of my pocket and giving it to you yes so again let's uh before we get too sorry, feel too sorry for the teachers in West Virginia. Let's find out about the truck drivers, the waitresses, the coal miners, and what kind of pensions they've got, uh, since they're paying for both their pensions and the teachers' pensions. And well, and again, too, as you said, point out, you contribute to your pension. Uh, your company, I believe, contributes as well. But you and your company are both contributing. Um, and uh, uh, do the teachers contribute to their pensions? And if so, how much? And if so, how much? Exactly. Well, so that's uh, that's West Virginia. There are other states uh, where this is brewing as well. So this week, the the focal point has been Oklahoma. Uh, they went. They walked out Monday morning again with the collaboration of a lot of the school boards. Uh, they are demanding a ten thousand dollar a year pay hike and two hundred million dollars in additional school funding. Uh, they are also demanding tax increases. They are you know they are not giving the democratic process the opportunity to determine how these how the this, funds should how be these raised. funds should uh-huh. be raised or what you know whether how they should be allocated uh they demand tax they've been demanding taxes on investment remember what i was saying about my pension being in the stock market yes <laughs> uh they want to tax that uh they want to tax they want to expand casino gambling uh which in oklahoma is a source of state revenue um and source of problems if i had to guess but we we can debate that <laughs> Um, and so even though the state legislature to try to avert the strike offered 6,000 a year on average and a handful of small tax increases, they walked out, uh, again, using that monopoly power. And it's actually gotten to the point where the, some of the teachers union officials, again, either they expect to lose school board support or they expect that the state legislature's views will harden. Uh, the, the, some of the union officials have said, guys, take a step back. You've got most of what you got a good bit of what you want. And it's the, the militant activists who have continued what are called wildcat strikes, unauthorized strikes. Unauthorized by the union. Unauthor- unauthorized by the union. Yep. And, and not through the formal collective bargaining process. Yep. 
And then we have uh, Kentucky and Arizona teed up as right, well. Right. The, uh, they're looking in Arizona, apparently they're demanding 20% increase. Yeah. And in, again, I would ask, how many persons in Arizona have had 20% uh, salary hikes in their careers? I, I haven't had many 20% salary hikes. Yeah. And, and then in Kentucky, uh, the teachers unions are going to go after them. NPR actually did a survey, NPR, known right-wing hotbed of right-wingness, uh, did a, a, pulled some numbers and tried to adjust the teacher salary to the cost of living. You know, so you hear, you know, they'll complain, oh, you know, the neighboring state or the, you know, teachers nationwide had paid so much more than we do. Well, part of that is because it doesn't cost very much to live in Kentucky. And when you look at the states in adjusted for their cost of living, uh, Kentucky teachers are the seventh best paid state, uh, you know, which again, fair enough for you guys, but that doesn't suggest that you guys are woefully underpaid relative to the cost of bread, relative, relative to the cost of, uh, cost of gas, relative to the cost of, of, uh, perhaps most importantly, a place to live, uh, that would, in, that would militate for labor action. Yep. One of the, speaking of the state comparisons, one of the most interesting things uh, in doing research for the show that I stumbled on was uh, a you know it is absolutely true uh, that some of these states uh, well that there's a big spread among the states in um, the kind of compensation that teachers get, uh, and there are big arguments about whether the labor laws. Uh, how much how much the labor laws different states have because they certainly differ as well uh, how much they make a difference and this study from Stanford looked uh, as far back as 1959 uh, comparing states uh, and what it found is that even before there were any collective bargaining laws in any states, you still had base the, the same sort of spread and difference among the states existed so that which, uh, is probably a function uh, both of politics and affluence. If you were a poor state in 1959, you're probably still a relatively poor state. Uh, with, with, in a 2000, hand, with a handful of exceptions. Yeah, you're probably 2018. There, there'd be a few, but but overall, it's the the, the relative ranking of states hasn't uh, changed enormously in their wealth, uh, nor in their uh, politics. Apparently, in their willingness to uh, to uh, be taxed heavily uh, and have their state governments spend uh, at, a, at a high clip. So, in fact, the the distinctions among the states are are, are at this point more than a half century um, uh, relatively half, half unchanging. Century older or, or yeah. older, with again rare exceptions. Georgia's yeah. probably gone up because Atlanta's become a hotbed of industry. Yeah, uh, but. <clears throat> You know, but it again, West West Virginia, if anything, has been decline. You know, has been declining as it's exhaust as it's using up its mineral resources. Well, and to be fair, as the Obama administration it with fights its yeah, war on and, coal and for eight years, for, and and uh, as uh, the government had gone after it. Yep. Well, uh, <clears throat> I brought up as uh, just now these the collective bargaining laws and the other labor laws in the various states. Um, uh, while that might not be the, the number one factor in the differences among states, it nonetheless uh, is definitely something that comes up a lot in these debates about the, mm -hmm. the teachers. Um, and 
in episode 13, we talked about, uh, with Mark Mix of the National Right to Work um, Legal Defense Foundation, we talked about the uh, upcoming Janus decision. It's been argued before the Supreme Court very recently, and it'll be probably be decided in the, decided in June. June um, is when we expect the decision to come down. But uh, that may not have a massive effect on the actual pay rates for teachers, but it does perhaps have an effect on the militancy of unions. Is that right? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, all of the states we have mentioned thus far: West Virginia, Kentucky. Uh, Oklahoma and Arizona already have what already have a right to work law, uh, which is the debate in the Janus case. A right to work law says that if you don't want to be a member of the union, you may have to, depending on the state law as a government employee, because it's government employees with the exception of federal employees are all covered by state law, not a federal law for labor relations. As a state employee, if you do not wish to be a member of the union, if there is a right-to-work law, you do not have to pay the union. You may have to accept the union contract and union representation, but you do not have to pay them. The unions want the union contract and the union representation. If you want more detail on that, go to episode 13. <laughs> but the simple, the simple one-sentence explanation is monopolies Mono bring power. <laughs> Monopoly, monopolies bring power yes. is a very good one-sentence explanation. Yes. And again, um, when corporations get monopolies, people rightly object strenuously. But. Um, so the, Jan the Janus decision, whichever way it goes, won't affect these four states. And I think that shows that the obviously the unions claim that, you know, Janus will destroy us and all the workers will be, you know, thrown into sweatshops is abjectly false. Um, but it shows that also there is uh, militancy within the union, not just from the top down. Uh, and as the national political environment, I, I, and I think the national political environment will have a lot more to do with uh, <clears throat> how the how the militancy develops than the Janus case. Yes, and just to to spin that out a bit, the national political environment matters to the teachers' unions because the two largest, the National Education Association, NEA, and American Federation of Teachers, AFT, um, they, they are massive players in national politics, uh, both in terms of foot soldiers and especially in terms of cash. I can, I can give you the numbers on cash. The, since 1990, uh, the Open Secrets database has tracked all the federal campaign spending by the political action committees associated and controlled by these labor unions. And, and corporations. And, and corporations and people who are employees—also uh, people who are uh, employees of, of any of these entities. Uh, the NEA, since 1990, has contributed $124 million, of which 97% has been to Democrats. That is the third largest organizational contributor in that time. The NEA is so well tied to the left— that the Democracy Alliance, which you can read about on InfluenceWatch.org, uh, which is the big donor convening of liberals, uh, includes guys like George Soros, David Desjardins, who is one of the Google guys. Um, the, the chairman of the board of the Democracy Alliance is John C. Stocks, the executive director of the NEA. <laughs> yes. The AFT, they're a little bit smaller, $111 million. 
99.7 to Democrats. Yes. Uh, their, uh, their president, uh, Randy Weingarten, is reportedly a member of the Democracy Alliance in her official capacity as president of the AFT. Uh, both of these are very well tied. And then looking at the unions themselves, looking at their dues-funded organizing and political operations and lobbying operations, just in their 2016-2017 fiscal year, so this includes the 2016 election day, but only about half of the year, uh, and then half of the 2017 year, the NEA made $53 million of political and lobbying expenditures, the AFT $40 million in one year. Yes. Dwarfing, we should point out, such boogeymen uh, on the right as Charles and David Koch uh, in their Certainly, in, their certainly in terms of direct political contributions. Yeah, direct yeah, political they, contributions. they dwarf uh, Charles and David Koch. Yes. So, and, and I just want to repeat that, that, that NEA— it, the Open Secrets database, which is uh, which is a left of center, you know, done by yeah, a left run of by, center run by group. a left of center run by a left of center group and a fairly openly left of center group. Yes, uh, the Center for Responsive Politics, but they do a superb job of tracking these things. And when they looked at uh, years and years worth of political giving um, by organization, so if you personally gave money, your employer yes, was counted would be with counted your gift. would be counted with my gift. So, uh, and they did that. Uh, across the board, unions, businesses, and the rest, uh, and they came up with their top 10, and the teachers' unions, both the teachers' unions, were in the top 10, giving uh, virtually 100% of their money to Democrats. Now, that number, raises— Number three for the NEA, number seven for the AFT, yes. as of last I checked. <laughs> yes, and by the way, number one was also a union, the SEIU, which is certainly— uh, They may have since been passed by Tom Steyer, but— Yes. They're, they're in the top two. <laughs> so um, so there's two things to be said, said about that. One is that, uh, uh, well, I, I want to make, I think it's so important, we, you know, the teachers' unions, one reason that they have political power, among many others that we're talking about, is when the average American hears teachers' union, they don't hear that second word. They just hear teachers. And, of course, as I said, most teachers are and, good and, and, and are and hardworking. The, and the teachers' unions are smart. They, yes. you know, the... They cultivate union loyalty among all teachers, not just the ones that depend on them. And if when it comes time to do some militancy or to advocate for a school board candidate, you send out, you know, you send out the teacher of the year because you've you've cultivated that you've cultivated that loyalty. Again, it's politics, and they're good at it. Yes. So peop, when the average American hears teachers union, he only hears teachers, and he thinks of the nice little old lady who taught he him to of his, read. He thinks of his kids' teachers. And his kids' teachers. Broadly good, you know, who are— Most of them broad, good. Broadly yep. good, unless, again, unless you're particularly unfortunate. Yes. But the thing to remember—two uh, things to remember there is, one is you're actually talking about political behemoths uh, like the NEA and the AFT, which, as we say, are, are staggeringly powerful politically— and the second thing is, let's think for a second about those numbers. You said the NEA gave 97% of its money to Democrats, and the AFT gave 997 to Democrats. But no one survey has ever found that among those nice, ordinary teachers out there working hard day in and day out, 97% and 99.7% are not themselves Democrats. The numbers I read, which I am recalling off the top of my head, so they may be off by... May, they may be off by many points, but not that many points. Uh, say it's something like seventy thirty among NEA members. Yes. Uh, Mike, if the the Mike Antonucci of EIAonline.org, Education Intelligence Agency, 
has I believe that was the I believe that was the source of the numbers and if if such numbers exist he has them. <laughs> um, yes. but I, I believe it was 70/30. Yes. So again, the unions are not being uh, are not treating their ordinary teachers well. The other thing we should say quickly, speaking of numbers, um, because the uh, the Center for Union Facts, which we both have friends uh, working for, but uh, they're another good spot for statistics on this. And uh, some years back, they did studies of some of the largest uh, school districts in the country to try to figure out what percentage of uh, teachers ever get fired. Uh, because again, mo Absolutely true. Most teachers work hard and do it and do a uh, decent job, but in those large school districts, you found the kind of uh, numbers approaching a hundred percent. Well, and the and the how this was two thousand this was two thousand nine. Big expose in mm -hmm. the New Yorker uh, of the New York City school discipline system. It has been tweaked around the edges since then. My understanding is it remains fundamentally the same. If you are a teacher accused of gross misconduct. Like things like coming to the coming to work drunk, abuse of your students. Your disciplinary process is so long, and you have so many appeals that they have to have special, basically warehouses called the rubber rooms, where these teachers who are under charge have to go to. They go to work every day at these and get paid. At I was going to get to that. Mm -hmm. Get paid their full salary. To the point where sometimes it's simply easier for the school administration to get them to voluntarily resign, even if that involves paying them, uh, even if that involves paying them severance. Because the collective bargaining agreement is structured in such a way, and the arbitration is structured in such a way, that it is, it takes years and years and years to adjudicate these cases. So, yeah, okay, you're able to get the potentially the the very worst of the worst out of the classroom, but they're still on the city payroll. Yes. So what I was, uh, as my recollection of the numbers on the, um, on the firings is that it was 99% plus um, are rehired year after year. Now, most teachers, great, hardworking. 99% of teachers in New York City, great and hardworking? Probably not. So... Uh, and again, you're, you, if you are a good teacher, having lousy teachers around you is not actually making your work environment better. But let's, so let's get back, though, on the, um, we were talking about how uh, the teachers' unions are these political behemoths, 800-pound gorillas in the political process, um, uh, in a way that people like the Kochs or, or any other right-wing boogeyman you, you want to pick could only dream of having that much power. Um, uh, the state, the particular states we've been talking about, uh, are uh, important. If 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 I am a political behemoth, an eight hundred pound gorilla in American right, politics, they're all, they're and I'm places, looking at the chessboard. They're all places where uh, where the left can make a play. I mean, you think oh, Oklahoma is super Republican state. Well, recent special elections have seen some very Republican districts go Democrat uh, because of. There's a great article in National Review earlier this week on how simply broken Oklahoma's school finance system is and how broken uh, Oklahoma's relationship between its local governments, specifically its large suburban and large, um, large I mean, Tulsa and Oklahoma City, uh, urban 
autonomy uh, levels is broken. Um, apparently, if if Tulsa were to were to pass a school tax for Tulsa schools, it would lose an equivalent amount of money from the state. Uh, so there's no there's no local sort of no local authority when it comes to the big things like taxing and expenditure. They can pass a bond measure to build things, but they can't raise you know they can't raise uh, raise revenue to use to pay teachers that they don't want to go to Texas. Um, yep. So, uh, so, 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 yeah, so Oklahoma has, has seen these surges in Democratic support in these special elections. Kentucky and West Virginia, although they've been Republican at the uh, presidential level for, in Kentucky's case, quite a while, in West Virginia's case since, I think, 2000, at the state level, they have strong Democratic traditions. Uh, West Virginia's governor was a Democrat until earlier this year. Uh, Kentucky still has a number of statewide Democrats in public office, uh, in in state offices. So it's a place where the where the where liberals could claw back some some of their losses of the past uh, of the past few years. And Arizona, according to the Committee on States, which is we mentioned the Democracy Alliance, the big donor convening of liberals. Committee on States is the big donor convening of people who are liberals concerned about state policy matters. We also have a profile on them on Influence Watch. Uh, Arizona is one of their key growth states. Uh, it's been Republican for a very long time, but because of changes in how the parties relate to each other, uh, the Democrats are very optimistic that in the not-too-distant future, they can they can flood it. Well, and demographics in Arizona's case certainly change. Well, I mean, demographics and then how the Republican Party has related to said demographics, but that's an entirely different issue. So um, uh, you promised our listeners earlier that you were going to talk about how the unions uh, taking politics now from off the national stage and down to the most local stage. Um, let, if you could explain briefly, how is it that the teachers unions typically are able to capture their supposed employers, which would be yeah, which the, would school be the, district. the school districts? Uh, so most in, in most places, or at least a very large number of places, uh, not me because I live in Washington, D.C., the ultimate governing authority of the school is an elected school board. Because of long heritage things back from people didn't like the Tammany Hall machine, so back in the 19... 19- Tens, they decided that we're going to make municipal offices not non-party. Obviously, you're going to have conservatives and liberals and progressives and communists and whatever running, but we're not going to put those names on. We're not going to put lines on the ballot. We're not going. We're going to try to take the party machines out of the out of the local election process. And they did it for did it in large part for school boards back where I used to live in Virginia, where where you live yep. in Virginia. Uh, it's nonpartisan, out of cycle. School board elections. Is that is that correct for Loudoun? Yep. Because it was for Chesapeake. Mm-hmm. Um, the, if you are a 800-pound gorilla interest group with a lot of highly motivated people, people who are highly motivated in the outcome of the election, this is a perfect setup for you because your endorsement, your endorsement carries weight not only with your highly motivated members, but you can you can say, you know, so-and-so is teachers endorsed. You know, the campaign material doesn't have to be entirely honest. 
and then you get your guys elected. And in order to make sure that you aren't swamped by an unfavorable national or unfavorable state political environment, you can schedule the elections. You can use your authority over municipal government, over these nonpartisan municipal governments that a lot of voters don't have a great deal of knowledge about. One thing that one of the defenses of parties is that the endorsement of a party suggests broadly that this candidate believes this sort of stuff and this other candidate believes this other sort of stuff. So you're so as low information as a voter may be normally, take those party identifiers away and he's even lower information. He has to do a lot of research in order to in order to know. And maybe that, you know, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe you have a more informed electorate, but in practice, maybe not so much. Yeah. Well, it's it's the uh, we talk about influencers on this show and the way special interests get uh, capture government and use it for their ends. You know, perhaps the single most critical factor in all of that is uh, the fact that the people who are getting the special interests, who get a special interest who gets unfair government benefit, knows profoundly about that, is highly motivated to defend it, and the rest, whereas the rest of us, for any given particular Knowledge and motivation create honest graft. Yes. Uh, What what was called by Gilded Age politicians, honest graft. Their, Their returns from acting on behalf of a special interest. And then, you know, to continue the story about school boards. So... The elections are scheduled out of cycle. I don't know when. I, I assume you don't. You guys don't have November elections in Loudoun for school boards. I'm embarrassed to say I've forgotten now, but it's definitely not. The, it, the, it's, the, it, the it's, fact, it's off, off years. Yeah, the the fact that the president of a politicalish, you know, public policy research organization cannot, off the top of his head, say when school board elections are. Uh, I bet every teachers union member and every teachers union official can say off the top of his head when his local school board elections are. Yes. And to be fair, the wife of my children could tell you in a second and would have the email addresses <laughs> for some of those school board officials. But yes, um, but they but they are often outside the the normal November elections. Even if you're a Virginian and you vote every single November, um, and it's gotten it's to the point where even five thirty eight, which is run by the liberal uh, liberal sta- statistician Nate Silver did some research on this because, of course, they were very interested in proving that only Republicans engage in so-called voter suppression. Lo and behold, having these off-off-year elections in these nonpartisan races is associated with proxies for union power. <laughs> yes, shocking, shocking. The, uh, well, uh, let's, uh, let's talk a bit about the single biggest issue in these uh, strikes that we've been discussing, and that is the teacher compensation. Uh, the first, I, I, I'm going to ask you to add some thoughts here. The first thought I'm going to add is, again, people have got to understand that teachers and teachers' unions are not the, the same thing, uh, because if you are, you know, good teachers, really good teachers, make a huge difference. I can say as somebody who's, who's spent many years in education reform work, you know, there is no doubt whatsoever from empirical evidence that a really good teacher makes a really big difference in your kid's school life and learning. So if in the rest of the world, if I am really good at what I do, I get to be paid a premium. And yet one of the most uh, vigorous fights teachers unions always make is they despise 
any kind of merit pay that would precisely reward the great teachers for doing great jobs. So what are the other problems with uh, teacher compensation? One of the other big problems is how it structures throughout a teacher's career. And when you add in pensions, it gets even worse. The way that teacher compensation has been structured by the teachers' union is that you, the pay is directly correlated with seniority, with how long you've been teaching. Your improvement as a teacher, actually, you hit your, you know, light, and with most professions, doctors and lawyers apparently follow a similar, uh, similar progression schedule. Um, sometime about mid-career, you're, you, you've kind of gained all your knowledge of, ex your knowledge of experience, and then however good you are then is how good you are. Um, so what this results in is that teachers early in their career are actually severely undercompensated. Uh, they're gaining quite, they're gaining knowledge faster than their pay scale is catching up with them. But then later in their career, maybe they're overcompensated. And then their pensions, because they're set up by the teachers' unions to be these defined, these so-called defined benefit, the government pay, you know, the government pays you out once you've made a certain number of years. Guaranteed. Guar guaranteed for life regardless of the stock market return, that the early, any early career teachers who decide, you know what, I'm done with this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm underpaid, uh, you know, I need to move to a diff, you know, I need to move to a different jurisdiction, you know what, I'm going to become a textbook editor. I'm going to become a, uh, you know, I'm going to go work in a private school. Then they get none of the, of the pension, you know, they get nothing back from their pension benefit. You know, my previous job had a similar 401k system to what we have now. All the contributions I put into my 401k and a small portion of my pension vested, I got to take with me when I came to Capital Research Center. A lot of teacher contracts are structured, so you can't do that. Uh, and the teachers unions have fought for that. And unfortunately, because now it seems like the teachers' unions are going to use militancy to force, in a sort of hostage hostage video, legislators to make hostage videos saying we, we care about teachers and, you know, let's just write them a check for everything and make no reforms to anything, uh, that these that these potentially innovative changes that could could do, do better maybe at retaining good teachers in the profession, even if they, again, even if they cost more, they might yield more. Uh, are, are going to be left by the wayside because it's all going to be driven by the, by the teachers' union and by traditional collective bargaining. Yep. Well, uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for all that good information. Um, on, perhaps on a uh, different show, we can talk about some of the top reform efforts that are uh, being undertaken, many by good donors, many by good nonprofit groups. Uh, although it's it's inherently a very difficult thing, and by the way, speaking as a parent, I have to say parents are partly to blame as well for, uh, for our education problems in America. That that hap that's that matters too. But um, it it it's so clear that this uh, sclerotic old style system that nobody thinks the entire economy ought to be ought to be run like this, and it certainly is the case that it that in something like schooling, you don't want one size fits all. Anybody who has more than one child knows just how wildly different uh, the needs are of different children, and that different schools at different times can be incredibly valuable. And we, you know, there needs to be more competition in the school system. 
if you're going to have these kind of reforms, if great teachers are going to be rewarded the way they deserve to, if terrible teachers are going to be fired the way they deserve to. Or or fired or encouraged to choose a different profession. (laughs) Yes. So uh, all that's going to require uh, big systematic reforms um, that unfortunately are not likely to be the outcome of these various strikes that we're seeing now. But Uh, so that's our show for this week. If you are listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, you should know that we broadcast a live video version of the podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays on both Facebook Live and YouTube. Uh, you can find our pages by searching for Capital Research Center. Uh, and if you're watching the video version, we encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform, or we're going to send Vinny by your house. See you next week. Come now. We're not the UAW.